0: Let me uh, pray for us. We're going to jump in. We're in week two of our Advent conversation, and we're calling it He Will Be Called. And so let's, let's, let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you for another morning together, um, that this, yeah, the prayers of this week of just the staff, like this is a place that we're going to experience many firsts. And we believe that you're good, and your grace is big, and that you have so much for us even today, God. So we just ask for a first today, whatever that looks like, whatever that's directed towards each person in here, the individuals that are sitting here, you know what it is that our soul needs today. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do what you do best. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, have you been keeping up with our Advent devotionals this week? Yeah. We have Advent devotionals. Our Instagram is coming in hot, um, you know, so it's good. Make sure you go check those out. We have a lot of different devotionals that are happening Monday through Saturday all the way through Advent. And so you're going to be seeing um, different staff members, people on our teach team sharing devotionals. And so we're, we're calling this season of Advent, he, he will be called and as we look at Scripture, what we see all throughout from the beginning to the end, all the different names of God. And this could be um, a little daunting if you go look at all the different names of God. Maybe if you're looking at them, you're like, wow, this seems to be confusing. Is, is God having an identity crisis? Why does he have so many different names? The point of that is not to confuse you. It's actually a gift that God gives us. God God is so big, he's so powerful that not one name can contain him. And when we talk about a relationship with God, when we come to him, It's he actually gives us these different names to interpret and to understand who he is, to deepen our understanding of who he is. God is always about relationship. And so the names of God uh, really do shed light on who he is. And so today, we're going to be talking about Messiah. And we're going to look at one verse. It's not even really one verse. It's mostly a half a verse. So it'll be up on the screen. We're going to look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. That is it. That is all we're going to do today. And this here is a phenomenal way that Mark starts his, starts his gospel. Mark sees the importance as he's about to talk about Jesus and the servant that, that Christ is. He starts where his people need to start, that Jesus is King. That Jesus is Messiah. In fact, if we start anywhere else, we will end up walking down a different path, maybe even away from Jesus. Everything we do, everything we say, the reason we worship, the way we, reason we dig into his word, the reason why we get in our tables, the reason why we go to El Salvador, the reason why we do West Side Nights is all on the foundation that Jesus is King. And this is where our conversation always needs to come to. Even if you're following Jesus for 30 years, even following Jesus for 30 minutes, it all starts with Jesus is king. And then we go about our discipleship, we go about our spiritual formation from that point on. And so this is our starting point today. This is the foundation we want to build our faith on. Um, and for Mark, this is no small claim. As he starts his gospel, the son of God, in the first century, the most powerful person at the time, can you guess who it was? Caesar. Caesar was powerful. He was a king. And what Mark is, in fact, saying is that although Caesar is a king, he's not the king. And although Caesar is a king to the Roman Empire, Jesus is the king of the world. Sorry, Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> Sorry if you've ever stood on the edge of a boat, and you're like, I'm the king of the world. It's a, it's a bold lie, right? This is, this is the claim that Mark is making here in, in uh, verse, verse 1. And so before we go any further, we must identify, and this is what I feel like Mark is doing, is he's looking at the, at his, the people in front of him that, that are under submission of Caesar, right? He is a king. When he says, the son of God, Jesus is the king, what that forces is the listeners and the readers for us today is to actually confront the Caesars in our lives. What are the Caesars that we're worshiping? What are, what are the things in our life that we are giving more power to, that we're giving more of our time to, where we're, we're, we're invested in more than we are with our relationship with Jesus. And so when Mark he says he is the king, he's not just a king, he's the king, it forces me to look at my own life and be like, what are the things am I bowing down to? Not just bad things. It could be my career. It could be my, my spouse. It could even be my kids. The things that the gifts that God has given me, I have a tendency to potentially elevate those things in front of, in front of Christ. And the best thing that we can do today, the best way that I feel like we can use our time is to reorder our priorities and recognize, okay, like, I, don't, I, I, don't want, I don't want the Caesars in my life to get my worship. I don't want them to get my time. I want to give God, I want to give Jesus our Lord my full attention. So Jesus has to be the center of the universe for us. And if we make that claim, yes, that Jesus is at the center of the universe for us, what that forces me to do is I have to remember that I'm not at the center of the universe, Right? That if, if I even build my faith with Mike at the center, my preferences, style of worship that I like, what kind of teachings, what the donuts are, what coffee's good, even just happens here. And then we can even take that and apply that outside this place. If, if Mike is at the center of the universe and the world revolves around me, then my faith goes in a completely different direction other than me saying, no, Jesus is Lord. Because it's possible to meet in a place like this. It's possible for us to still be here in worship and for for, for us to be going in multiple different directions if we're not rooted on the foundation that Jesus is king. And it's more than just saying that. It's us actually living that way. So Messiah, Messiah in Hebrew. If you're not familiar with that term, it means anointed one in Hebrew. In Greek, the word is Christos. And there's a ton of symbolism given here when you invoke the name Messiah or, or anointed one. Um, that traces actually all the way back to the, New, to back to the Old Testament. We see in the book of Exodus that in order for a high priest uh, to be a priest, you must actually be, he must be anointed with oil in order to actually go into the presence of God. So there's something really symbolic about oil here. We also see in Samuel the anointing of Saul, and then, and then later David with oil in order to become a king. And so we must ask ourselves, why is this anointing so important? Why was this essential in the Old Testament? Because the anointing with oil was a a public demonstration that you are someone that's been chosen by God to lead. Not just to invoke power or authority, but someone to protect. Someone to serve their people. And so kings within the Old Testament, that was their job, to protect the people. To make decisions that were best interests of the people, to serve them, right? And so we see this, then, this anointing. Over Jesus and all the kings before Jesus who were anointed with oil, we see one thing that they all had in common. They led with different ways. Some were evil. Some were fearing God. But all of them lived and then died. Does that sound familiar? They all had a time of life. They all had a time of rule and authority. And then they all died. All the kings before Jesus had their place on the throne. And then it was someone else's turn. And there was this passing of power. this passing of command. And so with the death and resurrection of Jesus, Mark is actually shouting from the rooftops here that Jesus is the only true king from this moment on. That his anointing is an eternal one. Because it came from God. And this is a complete shift for the first century Jews. That, that this, this person who they're looking at is Jesus? This, this guy? He, he's going to be on the throne forever? He's never going to vacate that throne Like, his rule, his power is eternal. No one is ever going to be more powerful than he. You can see the misconception here. And and, and, and the the approach from those that are listening, good, faithful Jews who are actually living in a time where they're expectant for a Messiah. And then we go on to see in a few verses later that Mark actually goes on to record the words of John the Baptist when he says, one who is more powerful than I, people are looking at John, maybe he's the potential Messiah, does that sound familiar to you? And John is easy to deflect and be like, nope. <laughs> and this is what we are to do as followers of Jesus, right? Everything about us is to point to Jesus. Doesn't matter how, if you're on stage, doesn't matter if you're in the back, doesn't matter where you are. And anybody would be like, hey, you a, awesome, you're great. Oh, no, no, it's Jesus, right? This is what John the Baptist is doing. He's like, there's one that's greater than I is coming after me. I'm not even worthy to untie the strap on his sandals. This is the appropriate posture. When we're talking about Jesus as Messiah, complete and utter humility and reverence. So much so that when we talk about Jesus, the son of God, and we say Jesus is king, what's our response to that? How do, what do we do with that? It's just like, okay, cool. Yeah, he's just another king. I've got a lot of other kings that I'm serving. Or what is our posture when we invoke Messiah into a space like this? So there's three thoughts I wanted to give you, um, as we're, if you're taking notes, in regards to Messiah. Put them up on the screen, and hopefully there's a shift here. Hopefully there's something here that we can continue to build our lives on. But what we see with Jesus is he completely redefined what salvation is. And so it's not an easy claim to make. So three thoughts for you if you're writing down. I'm going to give you all three real quick, and then I'm going to come back and unpack them. So the first one, Jesus didn't just come to save us from something. That's number one. Number two, Jesus came to save us through something. And number three, Jesus came to save us for something. So I want to unpack these together. As we talk about the first one, Jesus didn't come just to save us from something. I, I don't want you to get a, misunderstand that. There is a part of salvation where we see Jesus saving us from something. Right? That's, not, that's not like to say that salvation doesn't work that way, but it would be a misconception for us just to see salvation as that. Like, Jesus has reached down and I'm in this pit. He pulls me up and I'm forever rescued. Right? Like, he's, like, that's what prosperity, we hear the prosperity gospel, a lot of it's that, right? Like, you're going to, if you just follow Jesus today, your life is going to be great. Right? And a lot of times, honestly, that's actually how I became a follower of Jesus. That's the message I received in regards to me looking at who Jesus was. And then for the next 30-plus years of my life, I've had to unlearn and be like, oh, yeah, there's so much more to salvation. There's so much more to Jesus as Messiah than just picking me up out of this lowly bad spot and then setting me up on a firm foundation. What we know to be true is that there will be plenty of those moments ahead, right? So Jesus isn't looking to just save us from something. The Jewish community at this time was expectantly waiting for the Messiah, As they read the prophets in their Hebrew Bible, which was Genesis through Chronicles, they had envisioned that the Messiah's role was going to be revealed to liberate them from the Roman Empire. right? So in fact, that the Messiah would save them from a circumstances that they were in that they did not want to be in. That since they, Israel, as God's chosen people, God would actually come and he would save them from their enemies and elevate them into power and into rule. So salvation for the Jewish community wasn't just a spiritual salvation, but it was a political one. We we need the Messiah. We're here. We want want the Messiah to get us to there. He's a means to an end. Messiah is a way to get me to where I want to be. It's It's not about the kingdom of God coming in me and changing me. It's using the Messiah to actually get me where I want to be. Do you see the difference? So if salvation for us is just saving us from something, the road that we walk on is entirely different than the one that Jesus wants us to walk on. We could maybe make it a bigger claim and say it's just not biblical. Doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just not biblical. There's more to the salvation story than that. And so as we notice in the Gospels, Jesus was very quickly to debunk that the expectations the Jews had on him as Messiah, that that he was in fact going to save them from the Roman Empire. If you're a follower of Jesus, it comes to you, they say like, did you end up like me, following Jesus initially from what he can save you from? That's what happened to me. That's my story. And I want to encourage you that there's so much more to salvation than that. So if salvation for you, if Jesus is Messiah, if you're thinking about your life today, if it's all based on what Jesus can keep you away from, then we're missing out on what true salvation is. There's so much more to salvation that Jesus wants to open up our eyes to. If my reason for following Jesus is only based on my need of him just to pull me out of a bad situation or a circumstance, then Jesus is no more uh, powerful than than genie from Aladdin, is he? That's what what the genie was. Oh, I need him for this thing. There's a specific thing that I need, so I'll call upon Jesus when I need him, and then I won't when I don't need him. Right? There's more to Jesus than that for us. So if the salvation of Jesus isn't just from saving us from something, that must mean that salvation is intended for more, which brings me to my second point. Jesus came to save us through something. It's very different than from something. From what I can gather in the Gospels, and maybe for you as you've read through the Gospels, if you've ever done that, you know that Jesus, when he came to the when he came to the world, he stepped into some chaos. Right, there was a lot going on in the world when Jesus came. He didn't come step into this place that was completely harmonious and people were loving and getting along and serving each other and giving themselves away sacrificially. He stepped into a world of chaos. And that is still true today, by the way. So when Jesus came, he came to a world full of sickness, disease, oppression, injustice, loneliness, and so much more. So that must mean that the purpose of salvation, the purpose of Messiah, isn't just to only pull you out of suffering, but rather to meet you in it. And so when we talk about Jesus saving you through something, what we're talking about is Jesus being with you in your deepest, darkest moments. And that oftentimes salvation isn't about changing your circumstance, it's about you getting the presence of Jesus in those circumstances. To not fear, to not be afraid, for I am with you, says the Lord. That is most of the time what salvation looks like, is Jesus is just being with us. And salvation is the presence of Jesus with you. And I think... A, a sign of maturity in Christ as, I, as I'm looking to pursue Jesus and get to know him more and mature in my faith. One of the signs of maturity in Christ for me, when it's, it comes down to when the presence of Jesus means more than his deliverance. And there's a huge difference. Right? We, we face this. In our, in our, the longer you follow Jesus, you're going to have prayers. You're going to have desires. You're going to ask for healings. You're going to see people sick. You're going to want to see healing and transformation. And what happens when that doesn't happen? a lot of people's faith collapses because their understanding of God is based only on deliverance. And when that, when that expectation is not met, just like for the Jews, what do we then do with Jesus as Messiah? If we can reorder our priorities and recognize that actually salvation is based on presence, not just on deliverance, we will begin to grow and see Jesus for who he is as King. So Jesus came to save us, through something out. Some of you guys know that I'm, I'm the youngest of five kids. Anybody else have more than that in here? Like, I, I, I'm, okay, how many of you have, Heather? Wow. Yeah. No, I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait, you guys don't have six kids? Just kidding. I'm the youngest of five kids. It gets worse. You can feel bad for me. Actually, the youngest, they're all girls, so I'm the only boy. You can feel bad. Um, actually, I think it's done a lot in me to prepare me for the world. Um, and it's given me some resilience in that way. I feel like having four older sisters, I can basically be around anybody. It's prepared me for being a pastor thing, too. But, but I have a twin sister. She's seven minutes older than me. Um, if she was here today, you wouldn't even think we're related. We have completely different features. Um, she's, she's a risk taker. She's a rebellious spirit. She's the life of the party. I'm more of an introverted, cautious person, right? And ever since we were little, there's always dilemma of me being a rule follower, um, me not trying to push the limits, and then my twin sister was always that, that spirit that would kind of go and do what she wasn't supposed to do just because she wanted to. And I can remember this one time we were about five years old. We had floaties on. We were on a family trip. We were in Ohio visiting family members, and my parents were like, okay, hey, there's a pool. You guys have to wear your floaties. And these were the old school floaties that I think have been condemned now where you're not even allowed to put kids in them. And I still see kids like with the, you just slip them over the arms. And it's like any kid, like all my, my three kids will for sure would just pull those things off. Like those aren't safe. But that's all we had at the time, and my sister, my mom's like, "You're not allowed to go in the pool without your floaties." I'm like a good boy. I put my floaties on and I go jump in the deep end, and then right away, Melanie, my sister Melanie, walks to the deep end, looks at me down there, and she just goes, just (laughs) takes them straight off, and she just jumps straight into the deep end. And me being five, it's like, like what am I supposed to do about this? I just see her sink to the bottom of the pool, and there's this moment where she's. It's terrible, terrible image, right, where she's kind of just floundering down there, and my oldest sister yells, Melanie's at the bottom of the pool, and one of my older cousins just goes and just kind of just David Hasselhoff, Baywatch, <laughs> slow motion, and just jumps into the deep end of the pool and rescues her. And there was that moment of just like, oh my gosh, that was, that was so terrifying. That is so scary. And Melanie, at that point, immediately knew that this was not a good idea. She got a lot smarter that day. She didn't do this again, thank God. But the point is that she recognized how bad of a situation she found herself in. That she, that she was actually not able to survive this moment unless someone jumped in and saved her in her suffering, right? And this is just a weird story um, that really does show us Who, in fact, Jesus is to us. That this is who Jesus reveals himself to be in our lives. Jesus won't stop us from making bad decisions. He won't always pull us out of difficult circumstances or navigate our lives around pain and suffering. But what we do know from him is that he meets us in our desperate hours of need and comforts us and walks with us, heals us, and he saves us. He saves us through our suffering. Finally. Jesus redefined what salvation looks like by demonstrating that we are saved for something. And this is probably one of the more crucial ones that we see in the Gospels, right? When Jesus comes, he he, he is so much more than just a personal Savior for us. Again, this is how I became a follower of Jesus. This This is my worldview of who Jesus is. He is my personal Savior, this isn't wrong. Again, I'm not here to condemn if that's how you see Jesus. Again, we just don't see that in the Bible. We never see that phrase, personal Savior, in the Bible. But what we do see in the Bible is Savior of the world. Paul had a lot to say about that. New Testament writers have a lot to say about Jesus being the Savior of the world. In other words, when Jesus came, he came for the world. When Jesus lived, he lived for the world. When Jesus died, he died for the world. When Jesus resurrected, he resurrected for the world. So everything Jesus did, everything Jesus said, he did it for the world. This doesn't, this doesn't push us down as people into a place where say, you don't matter, right? Like you do matter. You are included in the world. You are a part of the world. But following Jesus as Messiah is so much more than me just interacting with God in a quiet space. Like coming to church, okay, I'm getting filled. I'm going to go home, and I'm just going to do my life again. No one really has to know I'm a Christian. That's not important because it's, my, my faith is for me. It's for personal use, right? Where we see that salvation, actually, in the New Testament was never for that. When Jesus came, and he interacted with people, and he met them in their circumstances, whether it was a tax collector, whether it was a military folk, whether it was you name it, what he always did is he pulled them from there, and he sent them on mission. He reminded them that you are saved for something. There are gifts that I've given you. There are things I've put inside of you that is far more about what your career is or how you make your living, that this is what salvation's for. It's to go and tell the good news of who I am. And so he saves us for something. And when Jesus came and identified himself as Messiah, he made it very clear. He doesn't just save us so that we can build our own kingdom and ask God what he can do to help us with that, right? Jesus saves people so that we can join with him in building the kingdom in and around our lives. So that's what salvation's about. It's a reordering, all right, so the kingdom of God is here and now, Jesus said. So salvation must be all about reordering my life to participate in what his kingdom is up to now. Not about using the name of Jesus or the power of Jesus to go do what it is that I want to do, because he's a helper for me in that. And these are two very different paths that lead to two different places. And I think this is what Jesus had in mind in Matthew chapter 9. If you're not familiar with Matthew chapter 9, it's a verse that's really messed with my theology quite a bit, Uh, the separation of the sheep and the goats. And Jesus goes on to talk about whatever you did for the least of these, you did it for me. Um, there's uh, There's this passage, there's this picture where you have two groups of people, the sheep and the goats, and this is not necessarily followers and unfollowers or believers and unbelievers. These are people that would have probably lived their life saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, or I believe in God, and then what we see in this picture is Jesus looking at the sheep and saying, right, whatever you did for the least of these, you, when I was thirsty, when I was hungry, you did that for me. And then we see the goats on the other side, right, where, where they're, what do we not do? Jesus like, I don't even know who you are, right? So you went about, the goats went about their life, uh, building their own kingdom and asking let the Lord be an add-on to what it is that they were doing. We see the sheep knew that the kingdom of God is here and now, and what they did is they saw the kingdom of opportunities all around them every single day and partnered with that. And Jesus says, welcome. And to the goats, he says, I don't even know you. You spent a lot of time in the temple. You spent a lot of time at church. You spent a lot of time in your tables. You spent a lot of time going on mission trips. I don't even know you. So there's something to that that Jesus wants us to see as part of salvation. That he has saved you for something. Now what following jesus why it gets so much fun is because that that four is unique to you there's a, there's a part here to play in the church volunteering in kids we need a computer person so brandon doesn't have to do slides there's parts unless you really like that it's his go-to it's where he's comfortable there's parts of serving the church for sure that could be the four but there's also um, things outside of this place that god has saved you for And why it's so fun to follow Jesus is that you get to seek him in that. The ways that you are, the dreams that you have. Maybe there's things that you believe God's called you to that you haven't stepped into. We are always saved for something. The sheep knew that the kingdom of God is here, and they participated in it. The goats were too busy building their own kingdoms, and they missed the kingdom opportunities around them. And so we see Jesus is Messiah, first and foremost. He's the foundation that we stand on, that he is God king. And then we go about our time together in community, whether we're together and whether you're at home with your kids, with your spouse, with your friends, with your roommates. Salvation has implications beyond this pace. And so when we talk about Jesus as Messiah and recognize him for who he is, he's the savior of the world. This is what Mark, anytime you read Mark, that's where you must start. The posture we ought to take, I think, is Romans 14, 11. And I think we have that on the screen. As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue will, conf- and will, every tongue will give praise to me. That is a fascinating picture. Um, there's some deep studies you can get into these passages. Um, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer that there will be a day, right, where Jesus reveals himself to the world. And whether or not you recognize him as king, there will be an announcement all across humanity, where it doesn't matter if you want to or not, there will be a declaration that Jesus is king, that he will make himself known to all people, whether or not you actually have lived that way or not. And for our for followers of Jesus today, even as we gather, I can't think of a more beautiful space than to announce Jesus is king today. And just for us to just sit there for a moment, and I think this invitation from, from Paul, this picture of of every knee will bow. Every tongue will give praise. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what separates us as Jesus followers from anybody else in the world is that our Caesar isn't just out there. Our king, Jesus, is here and he's living. And so I want to invite Kiana up in our team. I don't know if that's the plan. We'll see. Um, <laughs> but what we want to do is create some space just to do... Romans 14, 11. And I, I, you know, whether or not you can, just, we just want to say this space as we worship, I think mean, Josh will come up and lead us in a few minutes too with some response. Just to recognize that Jesus is the king. He's not just a king. He's the king. And for me, what this will look like is meditating and probably thinking about and confessing the different kings that I have had in my life this week. What things have I put, for him for, put before Jesus? And the opportunity to kneel before the living king is to pledge my declaration to say, Jesus, there is no other king but you. And this is what Christmas is about as we're talking about Advent. This is why we have reasons to sing. This is why we have reasons to celebrate. It's because we know the king. So Lord, we thank you for this moment. We thank you that you have the ability to give us grace when we've messed up. When our eyes tend to wander off all things that are... see this as an opportunity to realign our hearts and our eyes to you. We want to fix our eyes on you, Jesus, because you are the author and the perfecter of our faith. So as we worship now, God, um, we want to, we want to kneel before you as king. We want to sing praise to you as king. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.